0: Welcome to the Ramp Church podcast. We are so honoured that you've joined us today, and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester, or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr, Or find us on social media. Now let's head straight into this week's message. So our current chapter, though, is on kingdom living we ha- we're diving into what does it look like to realize that Jesus has not just invited us into a one-time decision, a prayer that changes our eternity. He's actually invited us into a new way of life, kingdom living. And that's really really beneficial for where we are now as as people in this nation because we're in a time where you just have to have the news on for about 10 seconds um, to hear there's a crisis in our cost of living, right? There's um, the inflation is on the rise and energy costs are out of control. And we're, feeling, we're seeing that in our grocery budget. We're feeling it pinch um, our, our, our budget really in, in, in every area. And so we're looking at, as the people of God... Do we actually have, can we experience this season in a different way? And so two weeks ago, we looked at what is our relationship with money meant to be? Mammon is one of the the words that the Bible uses for that. And then last week, we looked at what does it mean to be then shaped by this story that God's writing through our lives of not just being pulled out of, of something, but being put into a new way to do life. And today, I'm, I'm kind of going even deeper into this topic. And I hope today, this is my desire for you, is you feel a renewed insight, even passion, but also the sense that God is with you to strengthen you in disconnecting from our dependency on consumerism, on materialism, And then we also sense the invitation to connect to God's perspective, His care, His mission, and His rewards. So the title of my message is Overcoming Anxiety About Your Future. And this is what I want to tell you. You can overcome anxiety about your future. Did you hear me? That's good news. (laughs) That's good news today. You can overcome anxiety about this next season ahead. And it's amazing in Matthew 6. I'm going to read some more scriptures from Matthew 6. We've read these scriptures already. We're going to continue um, to, to, to refresh those. Jesus connects our relationship with money and finances to anxiety. Uh, that's, that's, that's not news to me. I think some of my, my greatest sources of anxiety personally are when I look at the budget and then I look ahead. Do I, can, can anybody relate? And I think realizing God has a different story for that, and I want to talk into that topic. Um, but why do we talk about this in church? Uh, I, can I just full disclosure? I, I don't like talking about money. And I, I know a lot of us, we don't come to church to hear about money. <laughs> um, and as, as a preacher, as a, let's just be really honest, as an American preacher... Um, that's kind of a weird topic to hear somebody talk about, right? Um, but in, in, I, I, th- I think I kind of swim against my, my native cultural stream. I don't enjoy talking about it. But I, I realized uh, we're just over five years old here at Ramp Church, and this is maybe the third time um, that we've talked about it in, in just over five years. And there's something that, that, that the Holy Spirit convicts me of from time to time. Paul said to his churches in Acts... He said, I've not failed to preach to you or teach to you the full counsel of God. And sometimes, uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit just brings that to my mind. And he goes, hey, have you read this verse recently? Have you failed to preach the full counsel of God? And there's three reasons why I think it's important for us to, to breach this topic here in this setting with our faith family in church. And the first reason is this. Uh, there's a biblical reason. Talking about finances and money, is a. there's a biblical precedence for this. Not only that, there's not just a precedence, but Jesus talks a lot about money. In his 38 parables, 38, 16 of them focus on the topic of money. 16 to 38, nearly half. Um, in the four gospels, on average, an astounding one out of 10 verses deals directly with the subject of money. One out of 10. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer. I, don't, I can't count the amount of messages we've had on prayer here at Ram Church. 500 verses on faith. And more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So for us to be a biblically faithful church, we've got to talk about this topic. But why? Why does the Bible talk about it so much? Because our money and possessions are linked to our hearts. Uh, our hearts are the central command center of our life. Remember Jesus' words, we're about to read them again, that where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Jesus doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. Um, I can assure you my tithe does not benefit heaven much, right? Okay? Heaven's not like, woof, wow, we can afford the bills this month, you know, because <laughs> Joe, Joe's tithe. It's not that. But Jesus is after your heart. He is interested in the central command center for your life. And the reason he's after that is because he knows there's a way to live that he designed that, that leads, yes, to the betterment of his kingdom, but also to your own personal flourishing. And when we disconnect our lives from the way of Jesus, we disconnect our lives from the way our designer designed for our life to flourish and to thrive. And if money is such a big part of the way we relate with the world and the way we live our life, it's a really good idea to ask God his thoughts, his perspectives. How should we handle this part of our lives? So in short, we can't be good Christians without taking a long look at how we think about and use money. You can't be. If you've not invited God into this part of your life yet... This is new territory for your Christian journey. And I can assure you, your growth spiritually, your thriving in maturity as a person must go through inviting him into this part of your life. So the first reason is a biblical reason. The second reason is this. um, It's a pastoral reason. If statistics that are true in our nation are true of Ramp Church, then many people in our congregation are currently struggling with money. These are just statistics. So there's a pastoral reason for us to talk about this. Besides inflation being at historic levels and and energy costs and recession looming, um, it's Christmas. (laughs) And according to stats by um, the money charity, each adult spends an average of 112% of their annual earnings. Now, I don't have a finance degree, but 112% is more than what you bring in, right? In the UK, we spend an average of 140 million pounds every day on consumer interest. Consumer interest, every day. A study done at this same time period um, by the debt charity Step Change found that at this point in the year, still in November, Two-thirds of us were already struggling to afford Christmas. Five weeks away, we're already struggling to afford it. So the, the first reason is we can't be good Christians if we don't understand this topic. The second reason is it's in our life. I mean, this is our daily life. This is our everyday life. And can you imagine what it looks like when you move from the place of I'm dealing with my finances all by myself to I'm inviting the creator of the universe who owns all things into that financial story? There's a pastoral reason why you need to invite the good shepherd into your finances. It's because he has an interest in your welfare. The third reason is this it's a societal reason. Why are we talking about money today? There's a societal reason. I don't think we can be good citizens of our city and our world unless we have a better understanding about this topic. We're not going to vote properly. We're not going to make. We're not going to understand the the, the issues that are going down down our street or in other neighborhoods or in certain districts of our city if we don't have a grasp on what's Jesus's perspective. His perspective should inform the way we engage with the world around us, not just the way I do my personal budget, right? And that informed, that theologically informed life should guide the way we re- we relate to the world around us. And I, I just. Just as a refresher, I know, I know we all know this, but I just want to show you how um, far from God's way much of society is in relating to money. We live in what's called a consumer economy, right? And um, I, I just want to show you the conspiracy at work behind the consumer economy. So the, and I, my, here's my goal on this. I want it to rock you a bit so you can realize What is the world around us? What's the atmosphere? And then we can can go to Jesus' perspective. But there's a conspiracy, I use that word, on purpose. To make you believe that you need to spend more and more and more and more to have a better life. It's constantly around you. That's the point of a consumer economy. The economist John Kenneth Galbraith, this is what he said about our economy. This is how it's built. Goods are plentiful. Okay, so we have all that we need. We don't have a needs-based economy. Goods are everywhere. Demand for them must be elaborately contrived. This is what a consumer economy is. Those who create wants, notice that word, rank amongst our most talented and highly paid citizens. Want creation, a.k.a. marketing, advertising is a $10 billion industry. A consumer economy is not just driven by meeting your needs. It's driven by by meeting your wants. But it's not just driven by meeting your wants. It's actually driven by creating your wants. That's what marketing is about. Look at Victor Lebeau. He said this in the mid-20th century. He's a retail analyst. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption Our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction our ego satisfaction in consumption I would argue that we are not we are not an irreligious nation we've just changed religions we it's not that we're godless it's that we have a different God it's not that we don't go to church Our temple is a temple of materialism. Have you been to the Trafford Center recently? The most familiar building I've ever seen like the Trafford Center is the Parthenon in Athens. The statues. And what did people go to the Parthenon to do? To worship. I'm not here to pick on the Trafford Center, okay? Please go, okay? I mean... I'll go with my family. I'm going to take my kids. My kids love it, and I will hate every second of it, but my kids love it, okay? I hate weaving through the sea of people. I just want to read a book and sit in Costa and drink a coffee. But you've got to realize that you're part of something bigger than just that exchange of money and goods. There's a whole system at work here. The father of public relations is a man called Edward Bernays. He was the nephew of Sig- Sigmund Freud, so psychology is in the family. Look what he said. This is, he, so he invented our modern way of marketing and, and the way we market goods in our society. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. If you were a public relations student, you would study his work. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We're governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. It is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. You know who used his thoughts not just for marketing, but to structure their propaganda—the Nazi Party in World War II. His thought is the foundation for the way our 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 consumer economy um, is marketed to you. The way we understand the social conscience, the 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 our our propensity for buying, our need to have. Um, to have more and more. So I wish we could go into the history of this in World War I and World War II, but for time's sake, we won't. I will mention how something happened in the mid-20th century called planned obsolescence. Have you heard of that? It's where no longer were they just making goods at, at a high quality so you could use them. They actually planned for them to wear out because they said, well, if our economy is based on people buying things... Well, it's going to make sense if I make them wear out. So they planned obsolescence. So, but the, there was a, there's like this balance there's a, where it's got to last long enough you feel like you get your money's worth, but not too long that the company goes out of business. Planned obsolescence. But do you know what has, you know what has now superseded planned obsolescence? Perceived obsolescence. It's where the item is actually not obs- obsolete, but you think it's obsolete. That's why you just bought the new iPhone when when your last one worked perfectly fine. Why? Why? That's why when you see a rental car commercial, there's nothing about the rental car. It doesn't talk about its tires or how fast it goes, how fast it accelerates. It shows two ridiculously beautiful people driving down a road you and I will never drive down, enjoying life at a level that we will never enjoy. In a country we will never visit. Why? Because they're not selling rental cars. They're not trying to sell rental cars. They're trying to sell a version of reality that stuff can never get you. Yeah. Yeah. They're offering something on in that on a heart level you know you want, you know you need, something in you calls for. And then they're saying enterprise rental car at the end. As if that is the answer. What is that? It's perceived obsolescence. I think I need that. And we have we have PhD level psychologists who are crafting these marketing schemes towards us. You're in a conspiracy. There's good news though. <laughs> and the good news is we can live a different story. And I want to go to scripture together to start unfolding that story. Matthew chapter 6. Um, I wish we had time to read the whole chapter. But I'm going to skip around a bit. If if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. I'm not going to expound on every verse, even though it's worth it. I want you to take this home, though, and chew on this yourself. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. Thank you for the encouragement, Jesus. (laughs) Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles or the pagans seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Overcoming anxiety about your future. What's the first step to overcoming anxiety about your future? And this is the first step right here. Remember that there is more to life. There's more to life than what you hold, what you can count, what you can buy, what has a label on it, what has an emblem on the front of it, what you drive, what you can tell your friends about. There's more, there's more. There's more. The first question Jesus asks in his message in Matthew 6 about anxiety, the first question he asks is this Is not life more? Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? This process of stepping back from our lives, our needs, and our wants, and looking from heaven's perspective, a perspective not trapped by time, trouble, or temptation, It helps free us. Listen to this language. It helps free us from the tyranny of our stuff. That's what Jesus is inviting you into. I love Solomon's take on this. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3, 7, and 8. Look at this. What do people get for all of their hard work under the sun? Then he uses a metaphor. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. We keep getting more, but it never actually feels like that Enterprise commercial. I got the, actually, I got the upgrade on the rental car, and it still didn't feel like that. That's what he's saying. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. For those of you that have a heart to, to spread the message of Jesus, here is a place where you can minister to your families and, and those in your workplace. Find that thing in them where they're continuing to seek, seek satisfaction and remind them it's, it's over-promising and under-delivering. That's, that's what Solomon's doing here. No matter how much we hear, we are not content, Solomon says. But then he doesn't just give us the diagnosis. He tells us why. Look at this. Look at this. In Ecclesiastes 10, he calls it a burden. I've seen the burden God has placed on us all. He's put it, eternity in the human heart. And this is the principle that Solomon's trying to get at right here. Only an eternal source can fill an eternal desire. Why why is everything you're buying and purchasing and planning and why does that is just rivers in a heart and it's never full? Because you're trying to fill an eternal desire with an earthly source. And there's only one thing that can fill an eternal desire. It's an earthly I'd say it is it is an eternal source. I love what look what the psalmist says in Psalm 107. For God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. What is the food? I'm glad you asked. John 6. Jesus answers us, "I am the bread of life. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst again." The first step to overcoming anxiety about your future is realizing there's more. There is more to this. Let let me let me say this. If you're believing in a Christianity that's about repressing all these desires, It's like trying to keep a beach ball under under a swimming pool. It'll just pop up somewhere else. That isn't the Christian journey. This is the Christian journey, right? Here's this principle. It's not about repressing your desires. It's about satisfying them with real life. (laughs) The problem isn't a desire problem. The problem is what you're trying to satisfy those desires with. Keep the desires alive. Actually, C.S. Lewis would argue our desires are actually too little. He would suggest throwing more wood on the fire. Heat those desires up because the hotter they get, the more you realize what the earth has to offer is not enough to satisfy them. I have to have a heavenly source because it's an eternity. That I'm desperate for in my heart. This is the place where our, our, our life, our hunger with God begins. Maybe you're exploring faith in here. Maybe someone druggy you here because you promised you would come next Christmas season. I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're just looking around for this church. Where, where does it start? It, it starts with this. Realizing I need something that no other area of my life is providing. That's where it starts. And getting honest with yourself about that. Christians are honest people. It's where we should start. I'm honest about my needs. I'm honest that, that everything else is, is not really doing it. And I'm wondering, is there something more? That's the eternal desire. The first thing is remember there's more to life. This, the second thing is this remember the source of life. There's a cycle. If you read Scripture, there's kind of like a cycle in Scripture. Um, have you noticed this? Like, if you do like a reading plan where you read like loads of Scripture at once, and we see this in Israel. God blesses Israel. Israel then thinks it's all about them. Israel walks away from God. Israel has terrible life because they walked away from God. Israel returns to God. God blesses Israel. The cycle starts again. And I see that in my own life. I mean, you want to increase my prayer life? Like, you take away, take away some money. Right? Hit me with a big bill. It's like, oh, Lord. I'm going to seek you like I never sought you before. Meet my needs. Right? It happens in our own life. God foresaw this in the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what he says. Before they get the promise, before they step into what God has for them, this is what he says. When you've eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you don't forget him. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, this is not an anti-money message. Just notice this. Jesus, God's right here saying to Israel, when you're in fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all, you, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll, for, you'll, you'll forget me. That's what God's saying. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have provided this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you even the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. This, this, God, God foresaw this coming. It's the same way in our life. So what is the secret? The secret's praise. Recognizing the source of your life. The first thing you do is you remember life's more than this. The second thing you do when you're fighting anxiety, you start to praise God for what you do have. It's amazing how praise breaks the cycle because it connects you to the eternal. It connects you to the source. It starts with just recognizing every good and perfect thing that I have has come from something, and it's bigger than me. Every good and perfect thing I have has come from above. And that recognition, it breaks this cycle. Uh, this is the other thing praise does right here. Praise anchors our hearts in God. So what, what, when we look ahead, and for some of us, you know, d- there's different economic standings, social standings all around this room, and that's one of the things I love about the body of Christ. But for some of us, as we look ahead, we're genuinely wondering, how are we going to make ends meet? And that's a real thing. And, 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 and all of us are fighting that on the outside. What, what I'm talking about right here is let's make sure that doesn't get on the inside. Let's make sure that fear and that, that worry doesn't get on the inside. And what's, what's one of our tools? Praise. Because praise anchors my heart in God when everything on the outside is shaking. Because I remember who my source is. When we can spot God's goodness, this is praise. Praise. Even in loss and hardship, we find a resting place. And just as powerful, when we praise in our prosperity, we acknowledge God's role in our blessing and provision, which keeps us anchored in him. Praise anchors our hearts in God. Number one, remember there's more to life. Number two, remember the source of life. The third thing that's going to help you Remember tithe, generosity, and the poor Remember tithe, generosity, and the poor Now, um, if, you've had, if, if you've had kids before Been around little kids One of the first words a kid learns Is the word, mine You know what I'm talking about It's like if you see little kids playing with each other I, 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 I remember hearing it from the other room When my kids were little Mine like, like that is the exchange. Like there's a toy in the dispute. And like the argument there, the way we solve that argument is that's mine. <laughs> you can't believe that. That is mine. And I, I feel like that, is, that thread is still in us. And that's not all bad, but it can lead to some bad decisions. And I, I feel like giving is one of the antidotes to a mind-centered life. And uh, look, look at this in, in 1 John. I love this verse, uh, chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, whoa, whoa, whoa. Talk about my future, Lord. Talk about my spirituality. Talk about my thought life. Don't get in my material possessions, Right. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You think our preaching's challenging at Ramp Church. Try being in John's church. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. There should be something about our lives of generosity that shouts to the world, we, we believe we serve somebody who meets all of our needs. Do you know your life of generosity actually is a, mis- is a, is a missional tool? It's a missional tool. I, I love what Leslie Newbegin, probably my favorite missiologist. This is what he says. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. There should be something about your financial life that is so astounding to the world around you, they're like, I don't get like that. I don't understand. And your only answer is, well, Jesus. (laughs) That's it. I don't have, that's my only explanation. Him, His grace, His provision, the satisfaction I find in Him. The only answer for my lifestyle is Him. That's it. That's it. This lifestyle of generosity, he's it. So I want to give you, I want to just make this practical. Three steps to generosity. What does it look like to, be, to have a generous life? If, 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 if you noticed, I'm a step kind of a preacher. So we have three points, and then we have three points inside. One of the points. Wow. Three steps to generosity. Start with anything. Start with anything. Give a button away on your shirt. I mean, I don't care. If you've never given, or if it's not part of your life, just give something. Like, give mints. It doesn't matter. Just just give. You need, you need to let your, your spirit and your mind and your heart and your body feel you release something out of your hand. <laughs> give your time. Give energy. Give your focus when someone's speaking to you. Look them in the eye and genuinely ask them how they are. Just generosity just needs to it's not just about a money thing it just that you just need to start with anything i don't care what it is start somewhere the next step is this commit to something specific commit to something specific the bible talks a lot about tithe now tithe is a bible word it literally means 10% and i just i just want to just be clear it is not a new testament c- c- commandment but it is a biblical starting point for committed giving. Okay? It is, it is this idea that I'm going to build my life around committed giving. That's what it is. Like, it's not like after I pay the, the power bill, after I pay for how much do I have left over, that's for other people. It's, no, no, no. I'm going to even structure where I live, what I drive, and what I wear based around this priority of committed giving. So tithe is 10%, but can I be honest, in the affluent West where we live, it's not near enough for for some of us for our committed giving. I'll just be honest, as a spiritual leader, just just so you know, just so you know I'm not just preaching this and not living it, it's been years since Stacy and I gave just 10%. I don't remember the last year we just gave 10%. And it's it's our desire as a family. We look at at the end of every year, we're looking at the next year, and we plan how can what can we do more? I mean, it's my desire to give more and more and more. I want to be at the end of my life like living on as little as possible and giving away as much as I can. And when you look at us on a global scale, if we had time, I go into the statistics. We are we are vastly wealthy. Even the poorest in our community is vastly wealthy compared to the poorest in our world. And we've got to take responsibility over, over those variations and lean into that moment. And we move, start with anything, okay? I mean, this is not a shame or guilt-based message. It, but it is, let's, let's just stand on our own two feet and just look at this honestly. And then at some point, though, you need to move into, into committing to something specific where your lifestyle changes over what, what you're committing to. Does that make sense? Commit to something specific. And then the third thing is this. I want you to grow into generosity. Can I tell you what? Let me define generosity for you irrational giving. It's irrational. I've been the recipient of irrational giving, and it blows my mind. And by the grace of God, I've been able to to do irrational giving. And I want to tell you, the Bible is true when it says it is better to give than to receive. There is something that happens in your heart when you step into that place where I'm just going to irrationally give. I've been with friends before, and one of my friends commented on how much he liked the shirt of the other friend. The friend was like, oh, yeah, I'll give it to you. Just like take it off. Right there. I'm like, whoa. What is that? That's just a mentality of like giving. Like I just want to give at all times. Like the fact that you like my shirt, I want you to have it. Do You see, that's just a different approach to life. That kind of generosity in our community is what is going to be, what what Newbegin said, it's going to be a testament to the world that you serve something otherworldly. There's something different you think about this, this, this currency that controls most of the world. You don't seem ruled by it. You seem over it. You seem like, Like it's not owning you like you own it. Like what is that? And the only answer is it's because I serve a different God. I have a different master. I have a different ruler. I don't decide my life plan based on that. I decide my life plan based on what's the wishes of my master. And I trust he's going to provide everything else that I need. Remember the tithe, generosity, and the poor. Number four is my last point. Remember who you are. All of these things, all of these ingredients, when they're working in your life, they're going to help you fight anxiety in the, in the coming season. Remember there's more to life. You need to remember that. You need to remember the source of life. Then you need to remember giving and generosity. And then you need to remember just who, who, who are you. Who has God called you to be? I love this. Um, in John Tyson's book, The Burden is Light, he writes... A hundred different things that the scripture says that you are. We're going to read all hundred. No, just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Isn't this awesome? The word of God says in Jesus Christ, I'm faithful. I'm God's child. I've been justified. I'm Christ's friend. I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body. I am assured all things work together for good. We can go on and on. Just go to the next slide. Oh, yeah, there's more. There's more here. I'm God's co-worker, I'm a minister of reconciliation, I'm alive with Christ, I'm raised up with Christ, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly realms, I've been shown the incomparable riches of God's grace, God has expressed His kindness to me, I'm God's workman. Oh, next slide. Oh yeah, there's more. I can give thanks for everything, I don't have to always have my own agenda, I can honor God through marriage, I can parent my children in composure, I can be strong, I have God's power, I can stand firm in the day of evil, I'm dead to sin, I'm not alone, I'm growing. God has opinions about you. He's already identified you as something. And they're bigger than your own desires, your own self-definitions, what other people have said about you. They're bigger. They're more. I, I, you thought that was all, didn't you? No, next slide. Oh, there's more. I'm overcoming. I'm persevering. I'm protected. I'm born again. I'm a new creation. I'm delivered. I'm redeemed from the curse of the law. I'm qualified to share in His inheritance. I'm victorious. I have hope. I'm included. I'm sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I'm a saint. I'm salt and light of the earth. These are the things God's declared over you. Well, why is this important? This is why. This principle right here. Because when you... Next slide when you remember who God says you are, you're not consumed by what they say you are. You don't care. You're not trying to keep up with the Joneses, whoever the Joneses are. When you find your affirmation from God, do you see, do you see the difference between his affirmation and anybody else's? It takes out the prick of materialism that's trying to identify you by what other people can see. But when you are rooted in such a confidence in who God says you are, you're not moved by that stuff. It doesn't shift you. You're not consumed by it. Some of you are going to receive freedom today. Some of you, you're already reanalyzing the way you even plan to have your Christmas, your 2023. Some of you, there's some insecurities that are being unseated right now. They found an established place. They found room to grow in your heart because it was based on comparison with other people. God's even breaking that now in this service. Why? With the truth of who you are. The truth of who God says you are. Some of you business leaders in here, you're, you're going to realize today that the only reason you have that, that such that driving ambition is because of what some of your friends from uni, what their businesses look like. And you're comparing it to them. And you're realizing I'm running over some of my employees in the process. I'm abandoning my wife and my kids out of some ambition to keep up with my friends. Some some of you are, you're, you're restructuring your priority list. Why? Because you're realizing it's not really about what they think anyway. It's not about what they think. It's about what God thinks. Because when I lay my head on my pillow, they're not there. God's there. And you know what God's saying about you? He's speaking Life. He's reminding you, you are a son, you are a daughter, and there's nothing you can do to change it. It's not connected to to your worth from a worldly perspective. I have identified you as my own. I paid a price for you. This is what makes every other price in your life worthless when you realize the price he paid for you. A price he didn't have to pay. He wasn't coerced or forced. He didn't have to be talked into it. There's no manipulation involved. But when you and me when we had no way to choose him we didn't even want him he sent his son his most valuable relationship to lay his life down so you and I didn't have to spend our lives for things that don't fill us today the opportunity for you and me me too, I'm I'm, I'm with you is to shift the source of our worth from what we can hold what we can produce, what we can count and it's to shift our worth to a new place and it's the fact that God has already received you He's already He's already He's already paid the price for you. And once that shift is made everything changes, everything changes. Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything changes. Not just eternity, your Christmas budget. Your time, it changes. Would you close your eyes? this room just with me if you want to be a part of this next moment this prayer this is what I believe God's doing in this space I believe he's renewing your imagination of the good life (laughs) Like, like movers come in and and they, they pull all the contents out of a house, and they move new furnishings in. He's refurnishing your imagination. And he's pulling, he's pulling things out that were put there by the value system of the world around you. They were put in there by the expectations of parents or grandparents, by the expectations of friends, all these things you think you need. For some of you, it's degrees. It's like, I just see that. It's like education all these things you think you need and he's replacing, he's refurnishing the house with his value system. You and I have a part to play in this. It comes through study and prayer, and, but right now I just believe supernaturally by his grace. As you, as you open your heart to him, as you open your mind to him, I just want us to pray this together and then we're, then we're going to worship. Say, Heavenly Father, refurnish my imagination the good life.